From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Today, we're going to dive into the markets, asset allocation, and the path forward. The investment landscape has changed materially over the last number of years, with more portfolio options available to investors than ever before. Tell me, think about that evolution of investments. I'm joined by Deacon Turner. Deacon is a national managing director in Bernstein's private wealth management and has been instrumental in the build out of the alternative investment platform. Deacon, thanks for joining. I'm happy to be here, Mark. Deacon, before we get into alternatives, there's been much talk about traditional asset allocation, the 60-40 for many, 60 stock, 40 bonds being dead. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Wow. I didn't know this podcast was three and a half hours long, Mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, in a nutshell, I don't know if I would say it's dead, but I think that there are very good reasons for investors to think that they've got to change uh, their basic assumptions as to why it's worked and to start thinking through how they start approaching markets um, with the sea change that we've started to see with the rise of inflation and interest rates um, over this last year or so, maybe from my perspective, marking the end of an era that began with the spike in interest rates and the beginning of falling rates under Volcker uh, back in the early 80s to now. And what could be a period of time of inflation that's above norm with productivity challenges and higher rates, meaning that you could face challenges around multiple. Um, certainly central banks pumped a lot of money into the system over the last four decades that could have helped asset price inflation and helped uh, you know, stock prices in, in index funds rise without a lot of thought or price sensitivity. That may be coming to an end. And from our perspective, we just think that, you know, people need to start thinking much more closely about how they construct a portfolio, not just from a perspective on return, but also one of risk management. I mean, one hard fact about 2022 is that was one of the worst years in fixed income in decades. And whether that was in municipal bonds, which did recover off of their lows, but still faced a very challenging period of time, or if you look at normal taxable bonds or, or global bonds for folks that are invested there, it was an incredibly challenging year where you know returns were down north of 10%, depending on your flavor. People don't expect that. And I think it's one of the things that points to the need for a better approach to diversification and risk management in portfolios. When you say a better approach to diversification and risk management, in the traditional 60-40, everything is public markets. And for those who aren't familiar, that just means that everything that one owns in their stock and bond portfolio is, is traded on an exchange or in the bond market is, is readily available. I have to think that when you're talking about expanding the notion of diversification, you're, you're thinking about the, the idea of private markets too. Yeah, I, I am yeah. very specifically. I'm, and I'm also thinking about, you know, even investments that may have some illiquidity attached, even if they're in the, the public markets or that 
contra to most people say stock portfolios are very concentrated versus a very broad-based index-driven approach. I think there's a number of ways that I think about kind of coming to alternatives, but probably the one that is most of a change for the typical investor who hasn't been there, it would be that private market illiquid aspect. Let me break this down because you mentioned concentration, illiquid, private markets. Let's first talk about illiquidity. I've heard you talk a bunch about in prior conversations, this notion of an illiquidity premium. So for our listeners who aren't as familiar, can you talk about what the notion of illiquidity is and why that drives a premium? In really basic terms, and look, when anytime you make something as, as simplistic as what I'm about to say, it's not perfectly accurate, but the way to think about an illiquidity premium is what is the extra return I, an investor, should get paid for locking my money up for a period of time where I don't have access to it every day. And so if you were to think about, say, private equity, where people invest in private firms that may uh, lock your money up for eight or 10 years or even longer, the, the, the theory is that you should get compensated, not only what the market does, but an extra premium above and beyond that for the time your money is locked up and the fact that you don't have access to it. That can come in credit, that can be in private equity, it can be in real estate, but that premium is a basic idea in the markets. And an observation I would make is that investors should not treat their investment portfolio like their checking account. They actually don't need asset uh, access to it on a daily basis for most clients. And therefore, what they should be thinking through in kind of a closely analyzed way is what portion of their portfolio could conceivably with a significant you know, um, margin of error, what portion of a portfolio could be in illiquid assets that could conceivably give them access to the illiquidity premium? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So how do you and your team think about it? Because if you're an institution, you're, you're a large endowment, right? The, the notion that you're gonna need your money tomorrow may not be as relevant as if you're a high net worth investor or retiree and you need your money for family, the things you want to do, philanthropic giving, et cetera. So, so how does um, a person, for lack of a better term, think about how much illiquidity they can take on? Well, there's some basic building blocks to that idea. And then I would say there's some work that we at Bernstein do for our clients. The basic building blocks are, one, having a good handle on what your lifestyle needs are not just this year, but in the next few years, and any big planned expenses you would have, you know you can't um, take away the ability to meet lifestyle or planned expenses, whether it's a second home or paying for college for a grandchild or something like that, and lock it up where you can't get access to it. So you, you focus on identifying what we would call that core portfolio that is gonna maintain your lifestyle and your plan spending. And then to the extent you have assets beyond what will support your core lifestyle needs, you start to think about that as a, uh, available for longer term kind of endowment type investing, if you will, like a larger institution. I wanna come back to one other point though. Not all illiquidity is the same. There are, there's a different variety of instruments in the alternative space that may have illiquidity of a year or a quarter could be three years or five years, or if you're in things like traditional private equity real estate and, and private equity in the, in the uh, corporate market, that could be something at 10 years plus. Don't assume all Ill, Ill, uh, illiquidity is the same. And I think that's another thing that we tend to help clients do is think through, wait a second, 
I could easily access a private credit fund that may have illiquidity of a couple of years because I'm not going to be damaged by that. And that might give me the opportunity to access a better income stream than what I see in the traditional fixed income markets. That's not going to impair me in the way that putting that same amount of money into a private equity fund or a traditional private equity real estate fund might do to me from an illiquid standpoint. So it's important to parse that out as well. The final thing we do is we help clients work on that core and kind of surplus capital so they can think through that allocation potential that they have in terms of diversifying their portfolio with some robust modeling we do with our wealth forecasting system. So I would encourage people to, to lean on Mark and his team if they have interest to think about that. So you're talking, you've, no, you've hit on private equity a few times and, and you also touched on private credit and private lending. I think, I think we should explore that further because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are gonna be familiar with the notion of private equity. Um, private credit may be more opaque to people. So can you expand on what private credit is and why the returns there are, 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 lar- are larger or higher typically than they would be in traditional fixed income markets? Um, I, uh, first of all, it's, a, it's an enormous market, not necessarily on most people's radar. What it is is simply providing loans to operating businesses, typically private, who are either having a challenge accessing the banking system or are looking for different loan features than would come with a traditional loan. And for doing that, the private credit uh, provider gets certain aspects in terms of their loan structure uh, that can be very attractive. It could be better income. It could be um, better covenants that allow them to step in and protect their assets. There's a host of things. Our experience with private credit, where we run a multi-billion dollar platform, and we do it in in multiple places, whether it's in the kind of traditional business environment, we do it in real estate, et cetera, is that by providing private loans, um, we're able to um, you know, significantly secure our, uh, our money that we're providing the company in, the, in our private credit team, often with the assets of the firm. And we're lending to companies that have highly visible recurring revenues. <clears throat> what that's allowed us to do over the last number of years is pay out approaching 10% a year to investors. And even through the COVID time period, when we took an impairment on some of the value of our loans, we really had de minimis realized losses and those loans have been written back up because we had done such strong underwriting on the front end. Now, that attractive income stream doesn't come without a trade-off and the trade-off is it takes several years to get invested. You're in actual loans as an investor and then it would take several years to unwind should you choose to do so. So you effectively have to look at this as kind of a three to five year type lockup at minimum if you're going to approach that kind of investing. In return, however, you're getting a very robust income stream. So there's that notion of illiquidity premium again coming back. Yeah, I think that's fair. And look, there is no free lunch. All alternatives, whatever flavor they have, have execution risk. They can be exposed to leverage. They can have concentration risk. And that's why um, beyond just saying that, you know, you've got you've to approach it with open eyes. That's why I'm also a big proponent of having a diversified basket of alternatives in your portfolio and not just one or two. Because you, you never know when a team may stumble, a sector may stumble, a, a lending environment may stumble, and you want to have diversification in more than one way. 
you were segueing me into like 12 different things. So I've got to try and pick one. And, and early on in this discussion, you talked about um, equity concentration and, and maybe that's a better way to drive return if we're in a different paradigm than we were in the last 40 years post, post Paul Volcker. Um, I think that's interesting because it, that, that argues that the free lunch of low interest rates and declining rates pushing up the value of all stocks goes away. So how does concentration or concentration in an equity portfolio fight against that? Well, and I'm not saying that a person's broad equity portfolio should be concentrated. I'm saying that- Okay, important distinction. Yes, and, and so I want to make that really clear. I yeah, mean, that's important. But, but what I'm saying is that if we were to look at certain services that we offer, they might be concentrated by, very concentrated by a sector. They might be very concentrated by a geography. Uh, there's a host of ways they could be concentrated. They could be just very concentrated because the portfolio manager believes that concentration is their best way to generate excess return because they know their companies very, very, very well. There's a host of ways to approach concentration. But what we've seen is some of those kind of concentrated portfolios, while they can be out of favor and significantly underperform, can also provide the ability to outperform. And that's just another kind of option that hasn't been in most people's minds about how they approach constructing a diversified portfolio. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you have a diversified portfolio of equities and I'm not, I don't wanna to get too technical here, but concentration could be for the next year, you're concentrated in technology. And then a year after that, you're concentrated in frontier markets, right? Concentration can take all different flavors, but maybe thought differently as a, as a way to take a shot on goal in a diversified way that um, can generate excess return, reduce risk, and complement the, the core equity exposure? Am I, is that the way yes. I'm trying to think about it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, for instance, if you're going to invest right now, China is really out of favor, but we have plenty of investors that are already starting to lean back against that. You might, If you right. were to invest in a China-specific fund, that's an example of concentration, that could be very interesting long-term in a portfolio, especially to something that's out of favor. That we've seen the same thing over and over again with say small cap stocks or you know, which had a particularly punishing year last year in some ways. So there's plenty of ways to think about concentration that lie outside of just number of stocks in a portfolio. It can be sector specific, it could be geographic, it could be capitalization, but it's something that should be on the table for a discussion. It's such an interesting way to think about it beyond number of stocks in a portfolio. That's, well, I, mean, I think, the first way people think about it, right? But there's, there's much more nuance to this notion of concentration. Look, if I'm investing in a small cap value fund or a small cap growth fund, I'm really concentrated in that area. <laughs> and, and by the way, there may be good reasons for it. You know, the small cap universe has less investors following it. Maybe it's a chance for research to add more value. That same thing applies to plenty of geographies. So I think that I think that people should the default has been Mark, people are just buying indexes. And yep. my argument is that indexes are price insensitive. And if the world's about to go through a period of time where price to earnings multiple might be challenged if we have continued inflation, then what that argues for is that people gotta lean into research and get more active in their portfolios and concentration's a way to do it. When you say active in a portfolio, there's a, a category of alternatives that I feel like, maybe I'm wrong, don't get as much headlines as they used to. Traditional long-short hedge funds, equity long-short, where um, stock selection would be critical. 
Do you think about it the same way, long short, as you did a decade ago, or is it out of fad? Does it still have a place? How do we think about long short today? Uh, I'm, I'm first of all very pro. I, I think hedge funds are, you know, like anything, different asset classes can go in and out of favor with investors, and hedge funds certainly earn plenty of disdain, but. Not every hedge fund is the same. And I would say if you were to look at some of the hedge funds, for instance, here at Bernstein, last year they did exactly their job. I mean, if you were to look at our, our uh, multi-manager fund or some of our others in the long short space, they actually had stellar outperformance relative to either the broader stock market or bond market or against a balanced 60-40 index, which is what they're supposed to do, which is, you know, keep you in the game when things are falling apart. And they did that. So, you know, you have to caveat it with often they're tax insensitive, but to the extent you have low taxes or you have a tax sheltered environment like an IRA, they can be very interesting as part of a diversified allocation. Are there ways that different investors should think differently about how to fund these portfolios, I'm going to go back to, in, in some of our final minutes together, this notion of the 60-40. So if someone says, okay, I get it, Mark Deacon, there's a better way to construct a portfolio or a different way to construct a portfolio than X amount in stock, X amount in bonds. I want to add private markets, hedge funds, wh- whatever it is for that client. Um, is there a one-size-fits-all to where it gets funded from, or does it matter what the underlying strategy is to, to know how to fund it? Yeah, I think it's important that there's no such thing as one size fits all in investing. (laughs) Whether it's asset allocation or where you're going to draw money from to support an investment. I actually think at a time like this, it's important for people to basically just reassess their asset allocation generally, Mark. And from there, what you may find is, hey, the last number of years, 2022 notwithstanding, we've let ourselves get over allocated to stock or vice versa on bonds. And there may be some natural trimming to a portfolio that needs to occur regardless of the new selection. And then within that context, you may be drawing from both stocks and bonds to fund an investment. So it's not just an easy rule of thumb decision. It's really, frankly, merits some analysis and working with an advisor. Now, I'm going to go off topic a bit on last question. Um, And I guess it's a hot topic, but maybe not as hot as it would have been six months ago. Um, do, do you think of crypto as an alternative or do you think of it as something totally different? Um, I have a pretty low opinion of crypto. <laughs> I, I guess I would say I look at it as a purely speculative environment. And I'm, I'm personally kind of in the, in the camp of investors who look at it as it may become something someday. But mostly it's been a greater fool theory shell game that I see when, when you see the collapse of some of these very large crypto markets and the shenanigans that have gone on there. I think, so I think that, that's an important distinction, right? Alternative versus speculative. They're not the same thing, right? They may fit no. they may be different, but they're not the same. No, I, I think the most value that my friends that have invested in crypto have gotten has been the emotional ride and the ability to talk about it at cocktail parties when things were great. And then to commiserate it about it when things have collapsed. Anything that's speculative, I think people, if you know, if you've got the money, it's like buying lottery tickets. They're super fun. I'm not going to argue against you on it, but don't count on it for your uh, future investment success. But I think it's also important to note that just because something's an alternative, that doesn't mean it's speculative either, right? Just because we're talking Certainly about not. hedge funds or we're talking about private credit, it, 
those are not synonyms. Alternative I, I, and, and speculative are not the same. Absolutely. I mean, if you understood under the hood what our team in private credit is doing, it's about as belt and suspenders as it gets. In fact, I would argue strongly there's reasons to say that they have to be competitive from a security standpoint to, you know, publicly traded very high grade bonds, even though they're not rated in that way. So, so risk comes in different forms, speculation or speculative and alternative and not synonymous. Right. We, we might think of private credit as an alternative, but it might look like how we picture going to the bank in 1950 to get a loan, right? Meeting with a loan <laughs> officer and getting terms. And that's about as old school vanilla as it could be. But in yes. the common modern investment parlance, we call that an alternative, which shows you sort of how upside down the world can be. Yeah, I, I always think of it like this. Something like 11% of newly issued corporate bonds end up defaulting. And you don't have that kind of default rate or loan performance in a private credit portfolio run by a, a conservative team like ours. Nothing right, even right. approaching that, right? I mean, that's that's what I say is you tell me which one's speculative there, junk bonds <laughs> or right. private credit. And that's the problem is that people... Because it's familiar, people often chase yield in markets like this into lower quality, riskier investments, but they're publicly traded and then they can access them. So it seems familiar. And that's a trap. Deacon, this was super informative. I appreciate you taking the time and I'm sure my listeners will benefit from it. Great. Happy to help, Mark. Deacon, to our listeners, thanks again. Feel free to email me at mark.penzener at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655 for any questions or comments on this podcast or any other related topic or earlier episode. And make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you find it. Until next time.